Do you have an idea for a podcast, but you don't know where to start? Maybe you're overwhelmed by all the tech or you're convinced nobody will actually listen to you. Well, I'm Shauna Game. After nine and a half years as a professional podcaster, at this show, everyone's talking money. And 25 million downloads later, let me tell you the secret to a profitable podcast. It is building a solid foundation, your podcast roadmap before you launch. That's why I created the Podcaster Class, a fast-paced group cohort podcasting for profit eight-week style NBA program. The Podcaster Class is immersive, comprehensive, and insanely motivational. If you want to create a podcast, DIYing a launch is just not the way to go. In the Podcaster Class, you'll get the tools, tips, and strategies to create a podcast that resonates with listeners and one you can be proud of. Get this. 90% of podcasters never make it to episode three. That's 2.8 million podcasters who just quit. So to be a top podcaster, you only need to publish 21 episodes, but you got to make them good. So in the podcaster class, I'm taking the mystery out of how to create, launch, and profit from your podcast so you can create a top 1% podcast just like this one. The May cohort is now open for enrollment. Classes start May 22nd. There are only 15 spots open. You are going to learn podcasting with me and 14 other amazing people. You can learn all the details at thepodcasterclass.com. Use code podcast when you sign up for $100 off. That's thepodcasterclass.com. I'm going to be real with you. Identity theft is on the rise, and you do not want to wake up one morning and discover that your bank account has been emptied or you're overdue on credit cards you never even applied for. We talk about this often on the podcast, but you don't realize how much of your information is available to scammers on the internet and how susceptible you and your family are to identity theft and fraud. I know, it's scary, but now you can get your data removed with Delete Me. That's why I personally choose Delete Me. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential ID theft doxing, and phishing scams. I just started using Delete Me and I got my regular personalized privacy report. (laughs) I was shocked what they found and removed. It was pages of information about me that I did not want online. Here's how it works. You sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts take it from there. I cannot tell you how relieved I felt to have Delete Me. And you know, it's also a great service for your parents or grandparents to help protect them from identity theft. Delete Me is not just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you do not want on the internet. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special price for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash etm and use promo code etm at checkout. The only way you get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash etm and enter code etm at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash etm. Go to joindeleteme.com slash etm and use code etm for 20% off. Hey, I'm Shauna Compton Game. This is Millennial Money. And today I'm chatting with Alexandra, or Alex as I call her, Bracken. She went from college student 
to New York Times best-selling author. She has an amazing story of how she charted her own career to becoming an author, the different kind of money struggles that she experienced along the way, and actually her story is probably a book itself. So she is just amazing, was such a joy to chat with, and was such a great... I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Like I said, we haven't had too many New York Times bestselling authors that are young and doing cool things. So I'm so excited that you'll join us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to answer questions, to talk about kind of the weird business that's publishing. Exactly. So tell me a little bit about your journey from, you know, college student to now like a full-time writer. How did that actually happen? So when I was in, oh gosh, when I was a freshman in college, because it wasn't enough of a journey and and an adventure, um, my first semester of freshman year, I decided I wanted to participate in National Novel Writing Month, which is every November. It's become this huge phenomenon online, basically. And the goal, if you guys don't know, is to write a 50,000-word novel or 50,000 words of a novel So about 2,000 words a day over the course of the month of November. And up until that point, I had always written fan fiction. I was a big fan fiction writer when I was in high school and middle school. So I'd been writing pretty consistently, but I hadn't written anything original until that point. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to go for it. It's not like I don't have enough reading to do. It was a <laughs> history and English. Let me just put something else on top of all the other work yeah. I have to do. Yeah, it was a history and English double major at William & Mary um, in Virginia. So it was like, why am I doing this to myself? Right. I must really love writing if I feel that like impulse to write on top of all the other work I have to do. But um, yeah, so I dove in and I hit my 50,000 words and I actually went way over that with that novel. And that novel will live forever on my hard drive. It's like a vampire. It just like (laughs) sucks up space and lurks. Um, But thankfully, no one will ever read it because I felt like I word vomited out like every fantasy book cliche. Was it easy? Was it easy for you to do the 2000 words a day? Or was it a challenge? You know, it's uh, some days it was harder than other days. So my personal philosophy on National Novel, National Novel Writing Month, or NaNoWriMo, as we all abbreviate it, um, is basically to set some goal. I think it's a great idea to just have a month where you really buckle down and you experiment. And the nice thing about National Novel Writing Month is that it doesn't give you the time to stop and really question yourself or really, um, a lot of people, what happens is they'll start writing and they'll stop themselves because they're like, Oh, I got to go back and edit those five pages I just wrote instead of, and a lot of being a writer is just like the forward momentum of the first draft and just like getting all the words out that you possibly can. And knowing that like, you can't fix a blank page. You have to really just like get words down. Everyone's first drafts are garbage. (laughs) They're not good. That's okay. If it helps you to change your thinking on them, call them draft zeros like I do. Um, just so you know that like 
it will, I, I think it's really important to emphasize that writing a book, as I've learned over the years, happens really in the revision process versus the first draft. Um, so if that makes sense, it's really yeah. a lot of editing and back and forth with your critique partners and your editor and all of that. So take that pressure off yourself. If it helps to do nano, do nano. Um, but yeah, it's, I found that like, depending on my workload when I was in college, some days I could easily do the 2000 other days I could only do 500 and then other days I could do like 5,000 if it was a weekend. So I could kind of make up for lost time and all of that. But really, you know, I think what it also trains you to do, which I think becomes important is to kind of make an appointment with yourself. If you want to be, if you want to write, like you really have to set aside, excuse me, you have to really set aside time. You don't have to write every day, but like during the week, set aside time for yourself to just sit down and write and work on your craft. Like the consistency of it, right? Yeah, it's sort of, it really is. My friends and I talk about it in the sense of like, you're building a muscle and you you know what I mean? You have to like sit down and the only way to improve your writing is really to put mileage into it. And that's the only way to discover your voice is when you're doing a lot of writing and experimenting. So you really just have to put in the work and it doesn't sound like it would take a lot of stamina to like sit down at a computer and just sort of bang away on a keyboard. But there's a lot of, you're doing like mental gymnastics, trying to keep track of the characters, trying to like follow an actual plot arc, you know, all of that stuff. And there's, um, and you also get used to just like working alone in large chunks of times. Like it's a very solitary yes. job. To have. I- isolation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There was, for like when I'm on deadline, I feel like I purposefully go work in Starbucks so I can have some sort of human interaction. Right, Otherwise right. Otherwise I forget how to human. I'm like, oh, oh yeah, I have to say thank, I have to say thank you and please. <laughs> this person's smiling at me because she wants to take my order. Like, you know. Right, right, right. You're in the, you're in the real person. world instead of the yeah. fantasy world that's in your head. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So from that, from that, doing that writing then, did that then sort of propel you into writing your first book? Yeah. So, I mean, I actually really, I believed in that first book at the time and I tried to query a bunch of different literary agents. And if you don't know what query means, it's basically a pitch letter that you write to literary agents about the project and a little bit about yourself to try to convince them to read the full manuscript and then take you on as a client. And that's really the first step in the publication process because agents are gatekeepers to the publisher and the editors at the publishing house, I should say. So you ha- generally speaking, you have to have an agent before you can sell your book to a mainstream publishing house. Right, so okay. I queried, I think, every single literary agent <laughs> at that time. Thank God for the internet. I really think like... People in the industry talk about this all the time that um, the the like volume of queries and submissions increased tremendously, like right around when Twilight was coming out, because that's when a bunch of information ah. about how to submit to agents and the agents' contacts and contact information kind of hit the web and became like widely available. And people started forming, you know, writing support groups and critiquing each other's query letters. So it really, I sort of got in right about that time. Um, but that project, 
thankfully did not, did not, sell. <laughs> did not even, I think maybe one, um, one agent requested the full manuscript and maybe only because he went to William and Mary. So he was like trying to be nice. Was and, that a heartbreaker process or, or did you feel yeah, like, okay, yeah. this isn't the right book? You know, I'm really hard on myself on a good day. So that was like tremendous. It was really sad for me and it, it kind of killed, it didn't really kill my love of writing, but it killed my feeling of like, oh, maybe I don't want to be a published writer after all. Maybe I just want to keep writing for myself and wait a few years and try. But I ended up having an idea my, let's see, it must have been my, was it my junior year? Yeah. My junior year of college, I had a really random idea for a story and I was like, oh, this story, this idea is really speaking to me. And I kind of have a sense of who the characters are already and felt compelled to write it, which is a really wonderful feeling if you love writing when you, the story is kind of like taking you by the hand and it's like, write me, write me. Yeah. Because other times it's just like pulling teeth and the story is totally silent and you're like, what do you want to say? Like, what are you trying to say? What are you trying to do? Um, but to take the pressure off myself and to be like, it doesn't matter if it gets published or not. I wrote the story for my friend Carlin for her birthday. I was like, I'm, she's the one who helped me edit my first failed project. I really want to like to thank her in some way. She seems to like my writing sort of. And (laughs) I tailored the, I ended up tailoring the project to like her taste. So it wasn't totally selfish of me. I promise. I tailored it. Um, I, it was kind of fun to think about too. Like what would Carlin like in this situation? Like what would I like kind of a thing? And that book brightly woven ended up becoming my first book that sold. And it's so, I got an agent. She's, Oh, it's just such a random coincidence that my agent, my then agent called me on my 21st birthday. She left the industry. So I have a different agent now, but so she called to offer representation on my 21st birthday. And then I sold my first novel, um, in the spring of my senior year of college. And no better time, right? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Everyone thought I graduated early. Like, in a, I get asked a lot about, um, advice for like, if you want to sell your book while you're still in college and it always feels sort of like a do as I say, not, not as I do, but really consider the fact that it is a lot of work to work on, edit a book and to draft a book while you're still in college. Um, everyone thought I had graduated early. I could to make my deadlines. I couldn't really do any of the end of the year senior stuff with rare exception. Um, this is totally gross and probably TMI, but I kept getting, I was so stressed out. I kept getting a sty in my eye. Oh no. Yes. So I did not realize that those are also caused by stress. So I had like this reoccurring style that would not go away. I'm trying to edit this book, kind of fighting. It was my first time I had worked with a professional editor, so I didn't really understand that relationship and how much I could push back or not. And um, and so I was just like, I was a mess my second semester senior year. Oh, anyway, yeah, but. And it also sort of dovetailed with me trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life after college because I had been so focused on selling a book because I was hoping that I might be able to write full-time straight out of college. And after I sold my first book for, like, you know, a, a decent advance, like, first advances are really probably not as much as a lot of people think they are unless sure, it's a yeah. really hot 
product that or hot product like a hot commodity that a bunch of different agents are after and a different publishers are after and it kind of goes into an auction situation you really only hear about the really big advances when in reality most people get like low to sort of middling advances and I definitely fell into that category so for me it was a very generous advance but it wasn't enough to support myself on and I had the very realistic take thanks to my parents that I might never sell another book again so I needed to actually have like job experience and work experience so I had been planning to go to law school pretty much right up until I was in the middle of taking the LSAT. Wow, yes. That's quite quite an interesting choice, yeah. Yeah, I was like, but see, I think I was only going down that path because in in addition to being hard on myself, I'm also a bit of a people pleaser. So my dad, like, so desperately wanted a lawyer in the family. Um, God bless him. But he... (laughs) So I... I'm not even joking. I was in the middle of taking my LSAT and I suddenly kind of sat back and was like, what am I doing here? I don't want to be a lawyer. I had already been thinking of my escape plan. Like I'll stay, I'll stay in, like I'll stay and be a lawyer for as long as it takes to let me pay back my law school loans. And then I'll write full time. I was like, that's not, that's not right. Good. Not going to work. <laughs> not good. Not good to incur debt just because. Just you want to please someone. Up. Yes. Yes. So I came back to school right at the start of my senior year and was kind of in a panic because I'm someone who really likes to have a plan and know where I'm going and have very set goals. And um, the the career counselor was like, well, you already know a lot about publishing because you've done this research to query your books. So have you considered actually working in publishing? And I was like, no, because I don't want to live in New York. I was the one, I think I was the random outlier who's like had no desire to ever live in New York City. I'm right there with you for some reason. Yeah, no, you know, I always say like even having lived in New York for six years, there's something really magical about the city. But I really firmly believe that it is a better place to visit than live. Yes, (laughs) yes. It's so it's so much hassle. It's like such a fight for everything. Um, I'm an extreme introvert for the most part. So it was very draining to live there. And I have a lot of really wonderful memories. And when I go back now, I'm like, Oh, why did I move? It's like seeing the boyfriend that you broke up with. And like, you can't remember any of the bad things about the relationship, just the good things. The grass is always greener, right? Yeah. And then I was like, and then I remember how much healthcare costs, how much food costs, you know? Right. Right. How much the taxes were. Um, and how crazy it was to fight to get on the subway every single morning. But anyway, I'm sorry I've rambled, but I ended up working in publishing on the children's literature side for about six years. I started in children's editorial and then moved into children's marketing because I realized being a children's book editor means it's more of a lifestyle choice than a profession because you do a lot of your... um, a lot of your editing and a lot of your submission reading when you're at home and the office time is spent mostly kind of shepherding projects along through the production process and going to cover meetings and taking agents out to lunch and that sort of thing. So you do a ton of work at home, which didn't leave much time for writing. Right. Interesting. So how did you then move, uh, move on from that? Yeah. So, so like the part two of this story, I also, I should, I should stop saying this because 
she, I think is a genuinely lovely person. She just was a really tough boss to work for. My first boss, when I was an editorial assistant, if I could like get through the week without crying in the bathroom silently once, that was like a great week. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. I was like, it, you know, it was just, and I was really homesick too, because I had gone from Colonial Williamsburg to New York City without any break in between. And I'm originally from Arizona. So even Arizona to Manhattan was a really big leap. Um, and I was actually like, it sounds terrible to say, I was actually like really miserable and when you start out in publishing, you don't make any money. Like, really, I think the average salary before taxes is like $30,000 a year. But then you have New York City taxes. Yeah, which is just taxes. not going to work. Yeah. Yeah. So you're living on very little income. And it sounds scary, but it's doable. Like, thousands of people do it every single year in New York. It's very doable, but you you know, you live in an apartment with two to three other people. You become the cliche of like eating ramen. Like my fancy dinner was I would have a package of ramen noodles and I would like saute celery and onions and <laughs> have that same meal three nights out of the week and still get down to like $5 in my checking account. Wow. Uh, yeah, it was tough. And like your Metro card or your, the Metro card, the subway card, fare card, I should say, went gosh, I think it started at like $84 a month when I first moved there. And by the time I left, it was like over 120. So it really increased while I was there. And so did rent because I moved right after the recession happened in 2008. I was there in 2009. So the rent had gone way down, I think by New York standards. So we ended up getting a couple of apartments, you know, for maybe like a thousand dollars less than we would have normally, but I was still paying, you know, $1,100 a month, my own share for rent in New York. Right. And which I was is a really, lot. Yeah. On that salary. And I was really, really determined to one, not ask my parents for money and two, to leave the rest of my advance for my first book alone. I really wanted that to be for an emergency. Like if for some reason I, my position was made redundant or, I had some sort of health issue. Like I wanted to know that that money was there and I had some savings and I ended up being grateful for that because I didn't mention this before, but the summer between, um, when I graduated college and when I started actually working, I did the Columbia publishing course, which is a couple weeks at Columbia university. And it's sort of a crash course into publishing. So I could kind of pay for that experience myself and, hit the ground running and go through their big job fair program at the end. It really, I, it's sort of awful to say this, but it really is like paying for the job fair if you want to work in publishing. Right. But you get to hear a bunch of really wonderful speakers and you get to make a lot of connections because in a lot of ways, publishing is still very much an old boys network. There are a lot of things about publishing that are, even as it kind of moves towards the future, it still feels very old fashioned. But after that, I I was like, I can't stay in my position as an editorial assistant if I ever want to write another book. And I was feeling, you know, like really, really kind of unhappy and kind of down. And it, I used to have this thing called Chipotle Thursday where that was like the one <laughs> I would like, yeah. The one time my luxury for the week was that like on the way home on Thursdays, I would buy myself a Chipotle burrito bowl, which was overpriced because it was Manhattan compared to everywhere else. I would like have my $10 burrito bowl, 
go home and watch the Thursday night shows. And that was like the thing I look forward to every week. Um, so I was like, okay, I need to like work on a project that I love. That's just for me. Um, and so I started pulling together a bunch of different ideas. Like I really just wrote down kind of a big flow chart of like, what are things I just absolutely love and see if they kind of congeal into this project and that book. And so I wrote things like, um, classic rock road trips, teenagers with superpowers, waffle house, you know, like really random stuff. But that book ended up becoming the darkest mind series, which is, um, the book series that ultimately, um, gave me the opportunity to write full time. I stuck it out at my job in marketing for, I think like four years, four and a half years, close to five years. And was writing at night and on the weekends, I would literally come home on Friday night at six. I would stop and get dinner, most likely Chipotle. <laughs> There's like a reoccurring theme. With right. This, my life, I think my next book has to be dedicated to Chipotle. To Chipotle, yes. I think they need some positive PR. So, you know. Yeah. Poor Chipotle guacamole. Thank you for never poisoning me. Exactly. Um, Much appreciated. <laughs> Yeah, I w- so I would buy my dinner and bring it home and stop by the CVS that was on the corner and buy, like, a Mountain Dew. That is my se- my not-so-secret shame, but, like, I really had a Mountain Dew problem for a while because I was not a coffee drinker, and tea didn't give me enough of a kick. So I've had to, like, go through a program to get off of Mountain Dew. It's crazy. <laughs> is, is there, like, a special underground uh, secret program? <laughs> it really, it, like, really is the first, the... 12-step program, like admitting you have a problem. Right, right, right. Yeah, like I had so many signs from God when it came to Mountain Dew too. Like I would be buying a bottle and a kid would be, would stop me from trying to buy it and be like, my grandmother told me that that'll rot your teeth. And I was like, you don't, you don't know me. Yeah. God can judge me, you know, like. I'm trying to get a book out here, kid. <laughs> so I would go through like three bottles of Mountain Dew a weekend, but I, I mean, my schedule when I was writing the Darkest Minds trilogy was bonkers. It was like, would come home on Friday and I would write until like three or four o'clock in the morning, go to bed, wake up, work all day, write until three or four o'clock in the morning, you know, and then wake up on Sunday, write pretty much until like 11 o'clock when I would need to go to bed because I had to be able to function at work the next day. So it really was like, giving up on a lot of social experiences. Um, and how did you stay motivated through all that? I've really, I don't know. See, part of it, I think was that I just love the, I love the story. Um, I didn't want to disappoint readers by not keeping to my schedule. And like, I look back at it on it now and I'm not really, sh- it's sort of like one of those things where I'm like, how did I do this? Like my dad died right before I turned in the first draft. Of the book, like, I wrote like most of that book in the weeks after he passed away. Like, it's like, wow, I guess, you know, that was just like, I loved it so much. I was willing to do it and I wanted to make my career in writing work and get to the point where I could write full time because, you know, like I was saying before, I'm such an overly cautious person that I really was like, my agent had told me once that, um, if you want to write full time, you either have to be selling publishing about a book a year, or you have to be earning enough off of your backlist to live comfortably. Otherwise it's the payment schedule can feel too inconsistent. So I was like, I finally hit the point though, 
with the third book in the Darkest Mind series where I was traveling a lot for work and I was having a hard time meeting my tight deadlines. And I was like, I can do this. I can write full time. So I, I quit my beloved day job. I actually really loved my job in publishing. I was really sad to leave and all the people in that office. And I stayed in New York for another year, just writing full time. And then I decided I wanted to move back to Arizona because as freelancers and freelancers in New York know, it is really tough to um, write in full time or that too. It is really tough to um, work for yourself in New York sometimes just in terms of the cost of health care, the taxes that you get hit with. Um, the cost of living is so high, not just in rent, but in all other areas too. Sure, so yeah. I was like, you know what? I think it's been like 12 years. I think I'm finally ready to move back to Arizona and be near my family again. So that's where I landed though. And that's sort of the whole story that I just unloaded on you. But I love it. I yeah. love it. So how do you come up with your ideas for your books? Does it, does it just literally kind of flow out of you or do you have a particular process? You know, it's, it varies between books, which sounds crazy, but I've, I think any author will tell you this, that, um, writing each book is like learning how to write all over again, even if it's the same book, the same series that you're writing in. It's just each book somehow presents like a different challenge to you. And, you know, in the case of The Darkest Minds, I very intentionally wrote a book series that I knew would like make me happy. It was sort of like my selfish book where I was like, you know what, this is going to be filled with all the stuff I like. I'm going to have fun writing it. I'm not going to think about it being published. Sort of what I did with my first book, Brightly Woven, like I'm going to take all the pressure off and just write this for myself and enjoy the experience. But then with Passenger, which is my newer duology, it's sort of about time traveling and families. That one I had been playing with for a really long time, pretty much since I was in college. And the idea kind of stemmed from the experience of going to school in Colonial Williamsburg and feeling like you're meant to feel like you're a time traveler when you're in Colonial Williamsburg because everyone is reenacting, I think, 17, it's either 1775 or 1776, but and they don't break the reenactors don't break character until you see them like in down the street and wah wah buying themselves a beer. Right, and right, right. <laughs> so I wanted to capture that feeling and of like being a 21st century person in the 18th century and in different eras and kind of juxtaposed our values of today and our beliefs of today with those of the past. So very yeah. cool. I love that. Yeah, um, I've never had I've never had like a good shower idea or a lightning <laughs> idea. You know, I know nothing's ever come to me in a dream. I really do tend they to evolve. work. Yeah, but it's usually I've noticed I can't really write a book unless I know the emotional arc and the main character is really talking to me. So that makes me sound a little bit crazy, but you know, like you have to have a really good sense of who the main character is and how their voice sounds. I think to. Differentiate. Yeah, I think that it. makes sense. I mean, if you were, you know, writing a song or a song lyrics or a movie or something like that, I mean, you would need that same sort of inspiration. Exactly, exactly. And I think you can always tell when an author, or at least I, I can tell sometimes when like an author 
was having a hard time with the book. Like the writing feels a little bit more labored, but you can also tell when a writer was like really in love with the book that they're writing because there was like kind of this energy underlying the words. Um, I don't know if I'm especially tuned into that because I've definitely had books where I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm like pulling every tooth trying to like get words out. And other books have just been like very easy, wrote them in like three months, like so it really it varies, but ideas are everywhere. I also really love pulling ideas from history and sort of like, obviously, I studied history in school, so I, I enjoy reading a good nonfiction, <laughs> but I think that there's been a lot of like really interesting things that have happened in this life, and studying history also taught me a lot about world building, too. Interesting. Yeah, so tell me about your new book that's coming out. So Wayfarer is the sequel to Passenger, and this is the time travel duology that I was telling you about earlier. Wayfarer picks up right after, right after Passenger, maybe like a couple weeks later. So I, I won't spoil the ending of Passenger, but it really is the story of Etta, who's this modern 21st century violin virtuoso um, who grew up in New York. I really wanted her to be from New York as I was leaving New York as sort of like a love a love song to all of the wonderful New Yorkers that I knew and how resilient and their ability just to like bounce back, you know, that's yeah. characteristic of New Yorkers is that they can see something really odd on the street and just be like, okay. And like continue on with their day. Like I love that about New Yorkers and I love that, love the energy of New Yorkers. So I'm kind of, I guess the weird one that loves New Yorkers more than I love New York, the city, but um, and the other main character is Nicholas, who is an 18th century privateer, which is basically a legal pirate, if you're unfamiliar with that term. But he um, he and Etta meet up in 1776, and he is a former slave. He also can travel through time with her. So we have a young woman and a young African-American male hitting all of these different time periods. They're kind of going on a treasure hunt through time to find a missing artifact. And it was really, really interesting to write from a place of realizing that I think time travel would only be fun for maybe a white guy. Right. There are so many different standards imposed on women and people of color. And it was such a great lesson in empathy and compassion, like realizing Nicholas would have to like be very aware of his surroundings going to different time periods would have to kind of be a little bit more cautious in how he's reacting. So as not to draw attention to himself at a, who is very headstrong and kind of fiery really struggles with the idea that she has to be a lot more mild mannered and you know, they fall in love though the old story, but right. uh, So yeah, it's really fun, I think. And if you love history, I think, this book series is for you. If you do not love history, then I understand I have plenty more stories coming, but, and that will uh, be out in January, right? Yeah. January 3rd. So you can start your year off with time travel. Awesome. So one last question, I feel like I talk for you with you forever. Um, you've kind of talked about this a little bit kind of along the way, but is there any big kind of money lesson that you've long learned along the way that you would, you would kind of teach your younger self if you could? Yes. So, I think I'm I'm gonna ramble for a second again. I'm yes, sorry. Go for like, it. Talk your ear off. I'm sorry. Um, I have to explain a little bit how 
um, the payment schedule works for writing. Cause I think this is like somehow a little bit shrouded in mystery. So when you sell a book, you get an advance and that advance is basically sort of like a loan. You don't have to pay back. Um, but that advance money is divided up into payments. So you get a certain portion of it when you sign your contract, a certain portion when you deliver the manuscript and another it's usually third. So the third is usually the last third is on publication. So on signing, on delivery and acceptance and on publication. So it sounds like, like say you sold a book for $50,000. You're like, Oh my God, that sounds amazing. Like that's a good chunk of money. Well, you get, you know, a third of that up front, a third when you deliver the book, which right. could be Who knows? many months yeah. later, a third when it's published usually a year to 18 months later. So there are long stretches of time if you're not selling foreign rights, if you're not selling other book ideas where you are actually not making money. And you have to be, the thing I learned is that you have to be so disciplined when you're self-employed in putting 30% of your income into savings for taxes and really being good about getting like an actual tax accountant I made the mistake of like trying to have my dad do my tax writer, my author, my author taxes, like my first year. And he was like, I don't even know like where to begin with this. And I really think like being disciplined about, I would say like now I usually put, I usually put like about 50% of everything I make into my savings account and 30 of that will inevitably go to, um, will inevitably go to taxes. The other sad thing is like 15% of that same advance goes to your agent. So really you're making like 50% of your actual advance. So keep that in mind. Um, but yeah, it's just to be so, so disciplined about saving money and really budgeting and keeping track of your expenses it is something, keeping track of your expenses is something I have struggled with massively over the years. And this year I was actually pretty good for the first time after like eight years of this. Right um, on. Yes. Yeah. I just keep a notebook with me and all my author expenses I actually jot down. So if you're self-employed, like do yourself a favor, just even if you throw all of the receipts in a shoebox at the end of the year, be sure to actually, um, you know, write down everything you spent. So you're, you'll save yourself so much time, but really it's so hard when you're self-employed, but do yourself a huge favor and save more than you spend and don't spend more than you have. Don't spend money you haven't earned. Yeah. I love that. That's such a great lesson. I mean, I, I talk about that all the time that there, you know, you don't have to give up your lifestyle, um, to be smart financially, but you have to do things a little bit different and you have to be willing to, you know, form some good habits like that. Yeah. And just like consistency, it's sort of, it feels like delayed gratification at the time, but that was like my dad's main lesson was like, really don't spend money that you don't have. Like don't spend money expecting this check to come in a couple of weeks, because you don't know if it's going to come necessarily come in a couple of weeks. You don't know what could possibly happen. So it's really with money is saving as much as you possibly can. So you can expect the unexpected is key. I love it. It was such a good way to end. So where can everybody find out more information about you and find your books and all that good stuff? 
Yeah, I'm all over the internet. Um, come say hi to me on Twitter. I'm at alexbracken.com. I'm on Instagram also as alexbracken. And my website, if you're curious about any of my books or want to read a little bit more about me or see pictures of my super cute dog, I'm at alexandrabracken.com.